Good evening, Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield. It's great to be here this evening with you to be delivering God's Word. I want you to know I brought my family entourage with me. They're here in the front two rows here. Obviously, my beautiful wife is here with us this evening, and my parents are here, and my wife's parents are here. Her grandma is here. Grandmother's here. It's wonderful to have her here this evening. My brother, whom many of you know and love, he's here in the front row. And my sister and her three kids all the way from Canada, East Coast Canada, eh? I must say, the last time I actually preached on a Sunday in a Sunday service was in December of last year, and they all came from Canada to hear me preach. So, I must say, um, that's commitment. Uh, You guys get the award for longest distance traveled for preaching, so thank you for, it's such a joy to have you guys here. Love you all. My sermon tonight is entitled, Misconceptions of Sanctification, okay? Misconceptions of Sanctification. Things that we tend to believe are true about sanctification, but are perhaps not so biblically accurate. And I cannot believe how David's sermon this morning actually so fittingly sets up for my sermon tonight. Uh, Scout's honor, we did not confer on our sermons beforehand. Uh, I actually read it in the bulletin yesterday, probably the same that you did, and I was like, oh my goodness, it's like it's going to be covering similar topic here. And then when I listened to it, I was really like, wow, this is God-ordained. And I so enjoyed, and I know you did too, how clear he defined and addressed sin, sin in our lives And what I have to say tonight is simply just more of that. We're going to talk about that today. I truly believe that the Holy Spirit orchestrated these two sermons in his perfect sovereignty, and I think that you're going to benefit from the tandem of these two sermons tonight. I hope you do, even though we didn't plan for that. You know, David's sermon this morning was actually entitled, uh, Sin Came Off the Ark 2. I really should have titled my sermon, Sin Came Off the Ark 2. Part two. (laughs) Should have done that. I didn't. So buckle up. We have a lot more to talk about when it comes to sin and sanctification. Now, sanctification, I probably should define that for you. Sanctification, simply put, is the means by which God sets us apart for himself. He sets us apart in a distinct way for himself. That's the most, I think, basic definition. But beyond that, we understand this practically in our own lives, so I think we would describe it this way, as the ongoing, lifelong process by which we stop sinning and walk in his ways and live righteously. I think we understand that, most of us here. Uh, As it is sometimes put simplistically, uh, sanctification is the process by which we sin less, and live more of a life pleasing to God. And I wish I had more time to discuss the nuances of those commonly accepted definitions and perhaps even nitpick at them a little bit, uh, as they may need some refinement, perhaps. But because we have so much to cover tonight, I need to settle with those definitions for now and get us going on our misconceptions of sanctification. 
And that will help us to better understand sanctification as we go along, I think, uh, anyways. And so I think that that's going to be a fruitful, um, a fruitful venture for us anyways. There are five misconceptions I want to cover tonight. And they will naturally segue one to the next, one misconception to another. So I hope, so hopefully it will feel like a kind of natural progression, but you'll at the same time come away with some distinct points that you can remember. Now, we have a lot to cover tonight, and uh, I don't have time to start my sermon. I, I tried to. I put a, an illustration in here at the beginning to kind of catch your attention, and it was way too long. So I don't have time for an illustration for you. But I imagine you're already, just by me saying that, you're paying attention. So I don't need an illustration. So, <laughs> so let's get going with the first misconception, and it will naturally develop from there, okay? Misconception number one. Misconception number one, okay? For those of you taking notes, you can start writing some things down here. The flesh is equal to sin. Okay, that's misconception number one. The flesh is equal to sin. It's easy to assume that the flesh is the same thing as sin. It seems that Paul equates them a lot in the New Testament, flesh and sin. It's almost like they're synonymous. But actually, Paul uses flesh the same way that actually many religious people of his day used it. And it's basically this. Flesh is man apart from any divine help. That's flesh. Man apart from any divine help. It's a separation between the creator and the creature. Deity and humanity, divine and mortal. God is spirit up here, in a sense. And man is flesh. Separation. Paul also doesn't just refer to flesh as a physical component of man, but rather he treats it as though it's man both inside and outside. Sometimes we think of flesh as kind of maybe exclusively the, in, or the outside of man, not the inside. But it's actually, he uses it to describe the entirety of man, the inside and the outside. Both man's external and his internal are included in his New Testament term, flesh. This is why Paul's words are enlightening for us in Romans 7, verse 14. Once you turn your Bibles over to Romans 7, verse 14, once you see this. Romans 7, verse 14. Now we, he starts out and says, For we know, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, having been sold under bondage to sin. Commentaries and scholars, when you get into those, the nitty-gritty get caught up in this verse trying to figure out what Paul means by being sold into bondage to sin. That's often where it goes, because they want to try and figure out the nature of Paul in this, this passage. It's a, very, it's a good thing to do. We need to do that. And that's a really important question. What does being sold into bondage to sin? I think there are great answers for that. But I want to note that by focusing on that second half of the verse, often they can miss or we can miss 
the first half of the verse, what Paul's saying. I want you to look at what he's doing here. The law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Do you hear the contrast? Spiritual law, fleshly man. Spiritual law, fleshly man. The law is a spiritual breed. That's kind of the idea. Man is by nature a fleshly breed. The law came from God, who is spirit. So it has a divine spiritual origin. But man doesn't naturally have a spirit with those divine qualities. No, actually, without God, man is just man. Man is just flesh. Now turn your Bibles over a page or so to Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 3. Here we actually see evidence for why flesh is not equated with sin. Instead, it's depicted as weakness. Weakness. Now, I know the New American Standard says um, for what the law could not do. Literally, it just says in the Greek, for the inability of the law. The in- you hear that? Inability. That's what the word is. The inability of the law in which it was weak through the flesh. Because of the flesh, it was weak. God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here's how the law works. This is what he's talking about. When the law was delivered to Israel originally, God commanded his people to fulfill its demands and this is important, with no extra helps. No, like the video games, no passcode or no uh, uh, password codes or whatever, right? To get through the level. Only whatever the flesh afforded. No divine help, no spiritual assistance. Accomplish this only with your flesh. That's all you got. And because the flesh is the only option originally afforded to man to fulfill the old covenant law, Man simply had no capacity to fulfill it. That should make sense to us. Left to themselves, and by implication, left to ourselves in the flesh, we are weak, unable, ill-equipped to handle the law's demands. That's what it means when it says, for the law, weak as it was through the flesh. You could almost encapsulate it like this. You can't use flesh to accomplish a spiritual law. They don't mix. That's almost the logic of basically what he's saying. Remember, they are different breeds. The law is divinely sourced. It's spiritual. The flesh is altogether different. Flesh is unable to attain to this otherworldly standard that is divine and spiritual. And what's really interesting in Romans 8.3 is Paul is actually portraying the flesh as some kind of home turf advantage for sin. It's really interesting. It's like a sports analogy. Not that he's actually bringing sports into this verse, but it actually gives off that idea. Because the flesh is so weak and unable, sin actually takes advantage of that opportunity. He leverages that weakness to bend the flesh to its bidding. That's the idea. And to be clear, 
by itself, Paul's not saying that flesh is to blame. But rather, Paul carefully distinguishes sin and flesh, both here in Romans 8 and in Romans 7 in the previous chapter, and then he blames sin's the culprit, not flesh. Flesh is weak, but it's not necessarily the same thing as sin. It's not the same thing as sin. But God, here's what's so great about this verse. God sent his son to compete on sin's home turf, which is flesh. He became flesh, presumably losing his home turf advantage. And so he took on the potential weaknesses that we all bear, and then he beat sin at its own game on sin's home turf. That's what Romans, 7, or Romans 8 verse 3 is talking about. That's the beauty of Romans 8 verse 3, and then verse 4 as well, which is a beautiful promise as well. That's the victory of Christ. He took on the weakest form and won the highest crown. Flesh is not sin. If it were, then Christ was in sin for taking on the flesh. But even so, with the exception of Christ, we must realize that though flesh and sin are not the same thing, what we find is that the flesh, left to itself, inevitably leads to sin. That's the distinction you have to understand. It inevitably leads to sin, even though it's not the same thing as sin. And that should make sense to us, because without divine assistance, man is unable to please God. I mean, you can look down a couple verses a little bit later in verse 8. Now those who are in the flesh are not able, there's that word again, like inability of the law, they are not able in the flesh to please God. You can hear the weakness of the flesh in those words. Flesh cannot please God on its own. You need divine help. You need the Spirit of God to fulfill this spiritual God-ordained law. Does that make sense? You need the Spirit of God to fulfill this spiritual God-ordained law. That is why Paul spends significant time in the previous section. In Romans 7, verses 7 through 25, you know that iconic battle of wanting to do what's good, but not doing it. There he's showing us the very picture of weakness. You have to come away with, from Romans 7 with that idea. There is weakness and inability inherent in those verses. And do you want to see Romans 7 played out in the Bible? Like, where is a good example of someone who lived out Romans 7? Uh, look, turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Actually, David mentioned this earlier in his sermon. This was great. I'm, there's so much that he helped set up for this sermon. This is wonderful. Chapter 26, verse 40. And this is what I would argue here. And if you look at verse 40... He says, in this way, were you not able to watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray. Why? Why watch and pray? So that you may not enter into temptation, right? Sin. 
on the one hand, the spirit is willing, but on the other hand, the flesh is weak. There's the weakness, right? This is not the Holy Spirit is willing, by the way. I mean, I think it's pretty clear. I think all commentators are pretty much in agreement on that. This is man's internal spirit. Man, your spirit internally, Peter, James, John, is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, here's an important point. Peter, James, and John would actually qualify in this moment as old covenant saints. What do I mean? They're not under the new covenant yet. Not yet. Even though this is a New Testament passage, I know, they're not new covenant saints. Because the new covenant wouldn't yet be inaugurated until Jesus dies and rises again. Here we have old covenant saints wanting to do what's right, right? The spirit is willing, but not able to do so. Why? Because the flesh is weak. Do you hear that terminology? Romans 7 is that terminology all over the place. You see that terminology everywhere in Romans 7. Wanting to do what's good, but not being able to do so. This is what flesh is like before the power of the new covenant spirit. It is inability. It is weakness. If Peter, James, and John were new covenant Christians at this point, perhaps what would Jesus have said to them? I actually think we may know what he would have said to them because Paul had basically said this multiple times in his letters to Christians. He would probably say this, hey, though the flesh is weak, the Holy Spirit is able to overcome it. That's what Paul says often in his letters. And I would argue that's what the message is to the new covenant Christian. That's the difference, by the way, between Romans 7 and Romans 8. That's the difference between the old covenant believer and the new covenant believer. You are a new covenant believer. What extraordinary blessings have been afforded to you? So answering misconception number one, the flesh is not equal to sin, but without God's indwelling, it will always result in sin because of its helplessness and its weakness. Misconception number two. Sin exists when we aren't actually sinning. Okay, this is an interesting one. Okay, and I need to explain this one quite a bit. And by the way, I still cannot believe that David's sermon just set up for this. I know I've mentioned that multiple times already. Uh, This is incredible. Uh, Thank you, David. And I love how he illustrated sin. And I I, I think you benefited from that as well. In James chapter 1, it's described as cunning, right? It's subtle. It can often be invisible to us. I love the word that they use. It's sneaky, right? Sneaky. Sneaky sin. We often are in sin when we don't realize it. Uh, Just like the picture of carrying around the luggage, right? In the illustration that we saw this morning. It can sneak in. That's exactly how our interaction with sin often can be. We can be so oblivious to it that we don't always take care to assess our motives and what we are doing 
And we might at times actually be in sin, even if we didn't initially think so. And you might be wondering, why? Why are we so oblivious at times? Why are we easily deceived by sin? Is it because, as Christians, and sometimes we might wonder this, is it because as Christians, sin has this inevitable hold on the Christian, on this side of heaven, so that we cannot recognize ever its full extent in our hearts. Almost as if it's always going to have part of the wool covering our eyes, having this foothold to prevent us from putting to death certain sins that we struggle with. That's basically inevitable. And I would argue biblically, No, sin does not have to have a little bit of wool over our eyes. It's not a necessity. And because of this, it is easy to develop a a theology of sin that supposes that it remains there even when we actually disengage from the sin through God's enabling power. Okay, and I'm going to be explaining this more here. Somehow, it still must have some of that wool over our eyes, so to speak. And I like to call this the gunk model. Okay, so I I call the gunk model. Uh, We sometimes envision sin like dirt or grime that can be stuck into the inner walls of our heart, right, of our spiritual heart. And in this conception of the heart, we imagine sanctification being the process by which we are cleaning off the walls of our heart throughout the entirety of our lives, and the heart gets cleaner and cleaner over time. And actually, that's a, that's a, that's a good model, actually. And in this model, the heart will never fully be clean. We will continue to have grime in the corners of our heart for as long as we live. But the grime is getting less and less over time. Again, there's a lot of good in this model. And also, in this way, we have a suitable illustration that neatly abides by the doctrine that no one will reach perfection on this side of heaven. There will always be gunk there, and so it really helps us make that doctrine really concrete. But, as much as that doctrine is true, that we will not be perfect on this side of heaven— Nevertheless, the gunk model does not provide the level of detail that can correctly define sin in its fullest sense and explain how sin functions, explain how, explains how sin actually functions. It's not an altogether bad illustration, I would say. In fact, there are many biblical things that are appropriate in the gunk model, Okay. But even with that being the case, it can misconceive sin as material, like gunk or goo or grime or something like that, as though sin is still sitting there even when we actually aren't sinning. But as for the, uh, a biblical definition of sin, at least when we think about it in its function, sin is actually an action that takes place in time. It's not a static object that remains there when you disengage from it. Because that is the case, it's important to recognize that under the new covenant, we as Christians have a heart that's a slightly needs refinement when it comes to the 
gunk model. Or I should put it this way, the gunk model may need a little bit of refinement when we think about it from our new covenant Christian hearts. Take your Bibles and turn over to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. And this is where we see the new covenant promised, one of the Old Testament passages that provides a new covenant promise to us. And if you look at verse 25, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, And I will sprinkle on you clean water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, And from all your idols, I shall cleanse you. And I will give to you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in your midst. And I will remove the heart of stone, which is from your flesh. And I shall give to you a heart of flesh. Now listen, Ezekiel 36 is making this very bold claim about the new covenant. Either your heart is clean or it's not. Either your heart is clean or it's not. Either you have the clean heart of the new covenant or you don't. That means, I would argue, perhaps we may need to refine our understanding of the gunk model a little. But you might wonder, what about trials? When you are faced with trials that you have not yet encountered, you find these hidden sins come to the surface, right? Weren't they always there waiting to be exposed? And that's a really good thought, and that's why the gunk model like, has a lot of true facets to it. But if we want crystal clarity on this, when temptation strikes and times get hard, what was dwelling in your heart before engaging with the sin is not actually sin, but the propensity to sin. That's an important distinction. Or in other words, there was weakness in your heart, and God targeted and challenged your weakness with a trial. He exposed your tendency to sin in that area. And then you subsequently failed, which is the same thing as sinning. And really, from a New Testament perspective, the weakness that was exposed in your heart is not an inevitable kind of weakness where you have no ability to overcome it, as that it was just going to have to happen. There was no way for me to be able to defeat that one. Next time I'll be able to defeat it as if sin will always have a little bit of that wool over our eyes in everything that we do in life so that we are unable to handle it under trial. It's not like the child learning to play baseball who can't yet throw the baseball from the outfield all the way to home plate as though he doesn't have the arm strength to do that. No, rather, this weakness that God exposes to you under trial shows your reluctance to walk in his spirit. That's the key. It is actually a weakness that shows your reluctance to walk in his spirit, specifically when you are under a certain kind of pressure that has perhaps been tailor-made for you. It's not a weakness of inability. Under the new covenant, it's not a weakness of inability. It's a weakness of choice to avail yourself of God's power. So let me bring this one all together. 
in a functional way, sin, I would argue, doesn't necessarily abide in the heart when we are not sinning. It's not a thing necessarily, like a noun, even though the Bible actually artfully and creatively personifies it as a noun or as a person sometimes, like in Romans 7, actually personifies it. But what I'm talking about by definition is in function. In function, it's really a verb. It's really a verb, and it's an action. And through trials, God exposes our tendencies that we have to sin. But every time that we face trials, we have the choice to actually, this is the hope, reverse those tendencies and not allow them to result in sin. Every time you have that choice and ability. Usually, however, what? We don't. But that was our choice of reluctance to avail ourselves of his power. So, answering misconception number one, is flesh and the sin the same? No, they're not the same thing. And then number two, sin doesn't exist in the heart when we aren't sinning, but the tendency to sin definitely does. Misconception number three. Misconception number three. I can walk in the flesh and in the spirit at the same time. I can walk in the flesh and in the spirit at the same time. This is sadly a very common misconception. And I would argue it is one that holds people back in their progress and sanctification. Because of the previous misconception that sin is can always be there, perhaps behind the scenes, kind of stuck in there in the crevices of our heart, even when we're actually not sinning or engaging in sin, we subtly suppose that we will never fully walk in the Spirit the way that God intended for us, at least on this side of heaven. It's not going to happen. We just kind of, well, we'll kind of try to get there as best as we can, but that'll never actually fully happen. Perhaps you've settled for a thought similar to this. There will always be sin in how I approach God. There will always be sin in how I approach God. My best will always have some unwitting trespass mingled within it. And to be clear, I should say it again, we should be mindful of the fact that we can often downplay our own sinning. A lot. I'm not arguing against that at all, that's for sure. We are notorious for favoring self, aren't we? We must be vigilant about that. We can often be sinning and perhaps not even recognize it right away. But even with that being the case, I know that it's still very easy to assume that when I walk in the Spirit, I will always have sin in my heart to some small degree, and therefore, somehow, I will always be walking in the flesh to some small degree. We treat it kind of more like gradations of walking in the Spirit and in the flesh, uh, percentages, all right? You know, I was uh, seeking to honor the Lord today when so-and-so blew up at me, but I know biblically that I'm not perfect. So I probably walked in the Spirit about 80% in that response and then 20% in the flesh, something like that. You know, only when I reach heaven, only when I reach heaven will I be able to walk 100% in the Spirit and 0% in the flesh in any response, in any moment of time. Now, before I get going on this, let me just pull aside and just say, you might be thinking, hold on. 
Are you advocating for perfectionism on this side of heaven? Uh, of course not. Uh, but listen carefully to what I am saying, okay? And I'm going to have to dig into this a little bit. When we settle for the idea that we are only able to please God in percentages, never able to reach 100% in the spirit in any moment in time, we are confusing the moments of our lives with the entirety of our life. This is, a, this is like its own misconception. It's like a sub-misconception of this misconception. What do I mean by that? I mean, we think that when someone says, you can be all that God wants you to be today, we think that they're saying, you can reach perfection before heaven. No, 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 no. That's not what that's saying. Listen, you can be all that God wants you to be in any moment in time is not the same thing as you will be everything God wants you to be in all moments of your life. Hear the difference? Please don't get this mixed up and misconstrue this as Wesleyanism and Keswick theology. There's some big differences between this. Wesleyanism and Keswick theology assert that you reach a point in this life where you are not able to sin anymore. Not able to sin. It's like the graph, you know? So I'm like working through my sanctification. I reach kind of like the ceiling and then like, ding, just kind of the rest of my life. Like that, right? That's really the view of Wesleyanism and Keswick theology. Rather, I'm asserting that under the new covenant, you are now, listen to the distinction, able to not sin. Sin never has to have its control in your life anymore. It often does because of our reluctance to walk in the Spirit, certainly. But it never has to anymore. It never has to. Do you hear the difference? Not able to sin. That's perfectionism. Not able to sin. Versus able not to sin. And that's what I'm arguing for here. And that's what I think is very biblical. To claim that you reach a status where you are not able to sin anymore, like Wesleyanism and Keswick theology, listen, that is arrogant and presumptuous. Because how could you ever know that you actually reached that point? How how did you determine that? And who are you to actually determine that for yourself? And beyond that, the Bible never comes close to asserting that you will reach a point where you can't sin anymore on this side of heaven. It never says that. For the record, and in a sermon like this, it has to be said, I will never advocate that believers on this side of heaven can reach a status of not able to sin. I just have to put that out there in a sermon like this. I will never preach perfectionism. But I will preach the power of the new covenant that you are now able to not sin. And that when you walk in the spirit, you actually can't sin. Whoa! It's not even possible, biblically speaking. And I'll show you why in just a moment. You just have to pay attention very closely to what scripture is saying. It's very clear. But there is a view of sanctification out there, and it's pretty much everywhere, that is convinced that there is some sin that taints us in every moment of our lives, 
even when we're walking in the Spirit. Hmm. But it's not an idea that's biblically warranted. It's rather, I, I think, a theological assumption that I believe has been constructed on two really good motives, by the way. They're actually really good motives. One, to avoid the false doctrine of perfectionism. That's, one, that's a really good motive. We don't want to believe that that's true, right? We're trying to avoid that. Two, to ensure that self appears depraved enough so that we don't ever come close to assigning any good to ourselves. That's a really good motive, too. But I would argue that even in this notion, right, that there's, no, there, that there's always evil in our hearts, even when we are walking in the Spirit, to argue that notion, it's really based more upon these two really good motives than it actually is built upon good exegesis and study of Scripture. And if that's true, then it's more of a reaction to bad doctrine than it is action on good doctrine. And while it's so important and biblical, this is really important, it's really important and biblical to ensure that we regard ourselves as depraved apart from Christ, in this situation, claiming that we sin even when we're walking in the Spirit, denies ignores or severely downplays the power of the new covenant in our day-to-day responses. It really downplays that or ignores it or simply denies it. Sure, we are depraved when left to self. Absolutely. But when walking in Christ, we are empowered for all righteousness. When walking in Christ, we are empowered for all righteousness. That has to be said. That has to be preached because the New Testament goes to great lengths to explain that. This promise is actually explicitly communicated in Galatians 5.16. You're probably wondering, like, when are you going to get to the Bible to show me this? Galatians 5, verse 16. You need to see this. Galatians 5.16. But I am saying, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Listen to that dichotomy that's Paul setting up here. Walking in the Spirit, walking in the flesh. When you walk in the Spirit, And listen to my phrasing very carefully here. You certainly will not fulfill the desire of the flesh. And you're like, you inserted words into my text. No. Ume is the term, two different words in Greek. Ume, double negative in Greek, super emphasis. He's saying, no, no. Certainly not, never. You can't walk in the flesh and in the spirit at the same time. That's the beauty of the new covenant. That's the beauty of the new covenant. And that's the contrast, by the way, with what is described in Romans 7. Because the guy in Romans 7 is baffled by the ambiguity of his heart, how he can love God's law and still somehow sin, essentially, at the same time. But for the Christian, the one who's under the new covenant, Galatians 5.16 is saying that there is no simultaneous walking in the flesh and in the spirit at the same time. It's actually impossible. Now look at the next verse in verse 17. Look at the second half of that verse in verse 17. He says, For these things are opposed to one another, so that you may not do the things that you desire. 
The spirit and the flesh for the Christian, listen, are two mutually exclusive realms. And you can only walk in one at a time. This is reiterated in nearly the same way in 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to turn over there too because you need to see this as well in your Bibles. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 10, it's probably just a few pages over for you as well. He says, For this reason, rather, my brothers, make haste to make your calling and election sure. Make haste to make your calling and election sure. For by practicing these things, you will not, here's that double negative again, you certainly will not stumble. And then he adds another one, just in case you didn't pick it up, at any time. That's what he says, literally in the Greek. You certainly will not stumble at any time. It's that same double negative, the ume, that's not a coincidence. And it's actually the same context as, as Galatians chapter 5. Because if you look here in 2 Peter 1 verse 3 and following, you would be able to see how he's talking about the enabling of God's people in all of these virtues in the new covenant. And then he talks about those virtues in, ver- in verses 5, 6, and 7. Rather, when we walk in the flesh, we are not walking in the Spirit. When we walk in the Spirit, we are not walking in the flesh. When you practice these virtues in the Spirit of God, Peter says, you will never stumble. And then, of course, as I said, he adds, at any time. At any time. So this also dispels the myth that you have two natures as a new covenant Christian. That is also a sub-misconception. No, you have now one nature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you probably know it. Many of you probably do. So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are still around. Nope, the old things are gone. And behold, all things have become new. But that doesn't fit my theology. Well, you've got to bend your theology to Scripture, not the other way around. And I'll explain why. You'll understand. It's like, well, you're saying perfection. No, I'm not saying perfection. I know it's easy. It's like, well, if anyone's in Christ, he's a bipolar, ambivalent, two-natured creation. <laughs> it's not what he said. No, you are a new creation. The old is gone. But even after becoming a Christian, trying to get rid of my sin, makes it feel like I have a nature to sin. Ah, so you're basing your theology on experience. Okay, good. We know that now. How is it that I have a completely new nature and the old is gone? But that's the point. You're mistaking your nature for your habits. That's the distinction. Your habit is to sin. Your nature is now in Christ. Get this. The new covenant has actually permanently moved your flesh from the realm of nature and transformed it into the realm of really just your habits. It's the old man that's just hanging on. But that, that's important to make that distinction because it gives you hope. Because, listen, you can't conquer your nature, can you? You can't conquer your nature. That's why God did it for you. But you can conquer your habits. You can. 
Where then, you're like, where then do I see my new nature in Christ show up? Where does that show up in my life? If I have a new nature, shouldn't it be like this grand arrival? It's when you sin and you are greatly grieved over it, right? That wouldn't happen normally if you were an unbeliever. Why are you greatly grieved over sin? Often immediately, because you have a new nature, and it's not to sin anymore, but to live righteously. We just need to train our habits to align with our new nature. That's sanctification. And don't worry. If you're lazy in your sanctification, God will make sure you feel as miserable as possible in your new nature until you realign your habits with it. Isn't that great? Now, just as I cautioned earlier, we should be mindful that very often when we believe that our walking in the Spirit has some sin in it, it may very well be that our conscience is picking up on sin. Listen, sin is sneaky, right? Sin is sneaky, just like we learned about this morning. And if there is some sin that really is truly there and our conscience is burning within us, then we must admit that we weren't actually walking in the Spirit at all, were we? Even though we thought there was some good in there. We were actually walking in the flesh the whole time. In other words, very often what we think is walking in the Spirit is not walking in the Spirit. Ooh, that doesn't make us feel very good about ourselves. Just because things, things seem to be fine and dandy in the way that we responded in a certain circumstance doesn't necessarily mean we were in the Spirit. So let's bring it all together because I've already preached a full sermon and now we still have two more misconceptions to go and I've got to get quit through this. Your nature is now in Christ. Your habits need to change to conform to your new nature. Walking in the Spirit is how you do that. That's how you change your habits to conform to your new nature. And when you do that, you can be sure from Scripture that you're actually, in those moments, not walking in the flesh and not in sin when you're in the Spirit. It's a beautiful promise, but it's one often I think that we don't apprehend because we falsely believe that we daily walk in the flesh and in the spirit at the same time. It's not true. That's misconception number three. Misconception number four. Misconception number four. The spirit helps me to defeat some sins in my life, but not all of them. The spirit helps me to defeat some sins in my life, but not all of them. And I think this misconception is a little subtle. It's not something that we dedicate much conscious thought to, but it's nevertheless a falsehood that naturally flows from the previous misconception, right? So if truly walking in the flesh and the spirit at the same time is our daily experience, then the spirit really becomes merely a force in our lives to aid us in the victory of some sins, but he's not able to help us to defeat all of them. We have to settle for less. But that's simply not a New Testament concept either. Back in 2 Peter 1, and you might be there already, verse 3. We'll go ahead and look at verse 3. 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us all things for life and godliness through the true knowledge, or probably more accurately translated, the recognition of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, I want to park for a second and describe life and godliness. Life and godliness, those terms. You know what they call that in Greek? They call that a hendiadis. And you're like, oh my goodness, that's not even a spellable word. Hendiadis. What is that? How do you spell it? Okay, for those of you taking notes, it's spelled H-E-N. H-E-N, it's like hen, the chicken. D-I-A, like dia in Espanol. Okay, D-I-A. D-Y-S, the beginning of dysfunction, I don't know. Okay, hendiadis. H-E-N, D-I-A, D-Y-S. It means one through two. And you might be like, well, that's not clearing up anything for me. One through two. It means one meaning through two words. You're using two words to convey one meaning. That's the idea. Life and godliness. One meaning spawns for the combo of those two words. It would be like saying godly living. Godly living. One meaning, but conveyed with two words, life and godliness. And maybe you're wondering, do we use hendiadis today in our speech? Is that just kind of like a made-up thing that, like, theological scholars have put together? No. We use it. Have you ever heard of cruel and unusual punishment? That basically just means unusually cruel punishment. That's a hendiadis. Why did you have to put the and in there? Because you wanted to. It makes more sense. It flows better. Life and godliness. It's a hendiadis. So, too, with life and godliness, Peter is saying, listen, his divine power has granted to you all things for godly living. You hear that? That's sanctification. He's granted you all things for godly living. Listen to that. All things. Did he give you power over some things? No. All of them. The Holy Spirit was not given to help you to defeat some of the sins in your life. He gives you the power to defeat all of the sins in your life. Peek over at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. This one is really good. I love this one. Philippians chapter 3. And while many continue to suggest that Romans 7 is Paul's daily Christian experience battling his sin, because they relate with that, even though no other such enslaving, defeating, hopeless experience exists in the New Testament, or even comes close to it for that matter. Philippians 3 paints a strikingly different picture of Paul's experience in sanctification. That's interesting. And I would argue it is his true story of daily sanctification, not Romans 7. So he relates in Philippians 3, verse 12, specifically in verse 12, not that I already received it, or I already attained to it, or I've already been made perfect, or probably more literally translated, I've already been made complete, but I pursue, or I press on, perhaps even to overtake it. From the previous verse in verse 11, we understand that what Paul's talking about, he's like, I've not already obtained it. I'm not, I've not already attained to the resurrection of the dead. And by implication, he's not just talking about his physical resurrection, but even the whole concept of the internal, the spiritual res- resurrection. I wouldn't argue, then, that Paul is claiming here, he's, he's not claiming he's going to reach perfection in his pursuit of Christ on this side of heaven. I wouldn't argue that at all. But 
The if that he uses in verse 11, he uses an if there, and then in verse 12, he's assuming for the sake of argument. That's the word that he's using there. That's the Greek if that he's using there. He's assuming for the sake of argument that somehow his pursuit of knowing Christ, his pursuit of his resurrection power and the fellowship of his sufferings will actually contribute to him actually getting there. It'll actually contribute to that. Paul knows that he hasn't arrived. He says, not that I've already obtained it, not that I've already received it, or that I've already become perfect or already become complete. But look at what he says. But I'm pursuing it if even I may lay hold of it. Look, this isn't perfectionism. Paul's not arguing for that. But even so, Paul embodies a sincere yet incomplete pursuit of sanctification that firmly believes that God has given him the power to defeat all the sins in his life. Amen? And yet, Paul is a great example of someone admitting that he hasn't arrived yet, right? But he's also not saying that he doesn't have the power to pursue it to the very last Rather, the moral of Paul's sanctification story in Philippians 3 is not that God can be blamed for not giving us the ability to put away all the sins in our life, but rather that we do not pursue it with the diligence required of us to access that power every moment of every day. Can I say that again? Because that's really important. It's not that God should be blamed for not giving us the ability to put away all the sin in our life. He's given us all the power to put away sin. But rather, we do not pursue it with the diligence, zeal, and focus that is required of us to access that power every moment of every day. This kind of understanding of sanctification now puts the blame and the onus directly on your shoulders and mine. That's what it does. We are responsible for not availing ourselves of all the power God has given us to walk in newness of life. We cannot settle for the notion that sin is just inevitable. That's waving the white flag of surrender and shifting the blame as though you haven't been equipped to handle every life situation. You actually have been equipped. You just have to retrain your habits. You've been given all that you need. You just need to go after it every day. It's a challenging call, isn't it? But it's a very biblical one, and it's also far more hope-filled than the notion that the Spirit can only aid you in some of your sins, but not all of them. That's misconception number four. And with that, naturally comes the last misconception. Misconception number five. It is inevitable that I will sin. It is inevitable that I will sin. Now, I was going to incorporate this misconception under the previous one, but I thought it was such an important misconception to talk about that I decided to kind of make it distinct and make it its own. So, of course, this misconception naturally flows from the previous one. If the Spirit can only help me gain victory in some sins, not all, then it must be inevitable that I will sin. It must be inevitable, as though it's against my will. It's just going to happen. Look, Back at Second Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be closing here in just a moment. Second Peter chapter 1. We already looked at verse 3. Look at verse 4. For by these, what are these things? He's talking about his glory and his excellence in the previous verse, the very previous words. By these 
this glory and excellence he has granted to us, his precious and magnificent promises. Why? So that by these promises, that's the, what it's talking about, by these promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world by lust. Now, essentially, Peter's saying this. God's glory, his excellence, verse 3, has given us precious promises in verse 4, so that by those promises, you would be able to flee the worldly corruption of sin. And I'm running out of time to explain this in detail, but basically those promises of being able to flee the corruption are embodied in the new covenant. He's basically just talking about the new covenant. A circumcised heart, Deuteronomy 30. A clean heart, Ezekiel 36. The law written on our hearts, Jeremiah 31. These are the promises that Peter is speaking about in 2 Peter 1, verse 4. And notice that Peter doesn't say, by these promises, you will someday escape the corruption in this world when you attain to the full resurrection of the dead, you go to heaven, etc. Right? He doesn't just say it that way. No, he's actually talking about, he says that these promises which you are experiencing today afford you the ability to start escaping that corruption now. Folks, sin is not inevitable for the New Testament Christian. It's not inevitable. Don't disgrace the power of the new covenant by believing this false idea. It's inevitable. I'm just going to sin. It's going to happen. No, whenever it happens, you chose not to walk in the spirit of grace. Sin is not inevitable, not under the new covenant. You can be what God wants you to be in this very moment of time, in any moment in time, Anytime you walk in the Spirit, you are a momentary picture. This is important. Anytime you walk in the Spirit, you are a momentary picture of everything that God has called you to be. That's amazing. You are a momentary picture of everything God has called you to be. I'm not saying you will do that at every time, but I'm saying that you can do that now at any time. The question is, will you make the choices today to walk in the spirit of God with relentless focus? That's what we're learning how to do for the rest of our lives. So we've addressed five misconceptions tonight. And here they are. Number one, flesh and sin. They're not necessarily the same thing, are they? But flesh left to itself always leads to sin. Number two, sin doesn't function as though it's necessarily existing when we aren't sinning. Number three, you cannot walk in the flesh and in the spirit at the same time. That's impossible. The new covenant actually prevents you from being able to do that, which is a wonderful promise for us. Number four, the spirit of God was given to us so that we would put away every sin in our lives on this side of heaven and not just some of them. And number five, it is not inevitable that you will sin. You can put away any sin today. The question is, will you be absolutely diligent in every thought, word, and deed? And will you do it God's way by walking in his spirit? The new covenant was given to you so that you can. The question is, will you? It's a matter of will to do what God has called you to do. But you might be wondering, there's probably a lot of questions on your mind right now. You might be wondering, how do I walk in the Spirit of God? I find that I often walk in the flesh a lot. And perhaps I'm not putting to death sin because I'm not walking in the Spirit the way that he designed. That's an excellent observation. 
I think too often we suppose we are walking in the spirit of lives only, uh, in our lives only to find that through trials and tribulations, it exposes the fact that we actually weren't walking in the spirit, but we were walking in the flesh. Just because, again, you feel good about yourself doesn't necessarily mean that you are walking in the spirit. Trials will expose whether you're really walking the spirit or not. But to answer the question, how do I walk in the spirit? How do I do that? It's really a story for another time. (laughs) We don't have time for that. But let me say this. Sanctification... Listen, sanctification often fails when we focus on not sinning instead of living for and worshiping Jesus Christ. Sanctification often fails when we focus on not sinning. That's that's walking in the flesh. We're trying to focus on not sinning instead of living for and worshiping Jesus Christ. You see, when you live for and worship Jesus Christ, you actually put on and you put off sin and you put on righteousness at the same time. Because you, you don't have room to put on sin anymore. Too often we focus on trying not to sin instead of pursuing a life of love, worship, and obedience to Christ as our Lord and King. Success in sanctification will only occur when you place Jesus Christ at the center of it. Too much we do self-help kind of sanctification, trying to better ourselves. That doesn't do anything. It's not walking in the Spirit. So you're going to fail at some point. Now, I've kept you here a long time tonight. I have five more misconceptions to cover, actually. I do, but I'm out of time. So we'll have to hold you in suspense until another time when we can deal with those. All right, let's pray. Father, we want to begin by acknowledging, like the Apostle Paul, that none of us here has arrived, and quite frankly, won't arrive. But, Lord, also like the Apostle Paul, we press on as though we can, as though we will seek to overtake. We press on because the power of your Spirit lives within us to give us all that we need for godly living. If only we stay in step with the Spirit. If only we are diligent to walk in the Spirit and not carry out the desire of the flesh. If only we engage in the new life you have given to us. Then we have the promise that we cannot err when we're walking in that new life. The question is, will we be faithful? Will we be diligent with every deed, every word, every thought? Will we discipline ourselves for spirit-filled living? We thank you that there is forgiveness with you. And when we do sin, and it happens often, O God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. While we remain in these mortal bodies, we will be clinging many times to the forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ as we purge away the weaknesses of the flesh. And we thank you that no matter how many steps we turn away from God, it is only one step back repentance. It's your work, O God, that has made it one step back, and we thank you for that. Give us insight in our daily walks so that we may know how to live a life of holiness to you, and thank you for your spirit who has enabled us under the power of the new covenant, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.